the coaches network bringing the game together venga must go venga must go why we've lost three in a row then they win, then they beat liverpool he must sign a new contract the coaches network bringing the game together you're now listening to the coaches network podcast aiming to bring people at the heart of coach and player development together. My name is Coach Yas, a UEFA A licensed, FA Advanced Youth Award and FA Goalkeeper B licensed coach. With over 10 years of experience working in youth football from grassroots right through to Premier League academies, I'm currently operating as an affiliate tutor for the FA alongside working towards a Masters in Performance Football Coaching. Today I'm going to be joined by my co-host and the Coaches Network Analysis Specialist, Coach Ben. Ben is a UEFA A licensed coach who holds an FA Youth Award and a Masters in Sports Coaching with 10 years of experience including working across the male and female youth development pathways alongside a vast experience on individual player and team performance analysis. And as part of our Insight series, we'll be joined by a range of individuals working across multiple disciplines within the coaching world in order to explore their journeys and dig deeper into their experiences so that we can leave you with some golden nuggets to help you reach your full potential. Guys, welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Network. My name is Coach Yas, and today I'm joined by my co-host Ben, as usual. But we've got a very special guest in the building with us today, or on Zoom with us today, shall I say. Mark Warburton, first team manager at QPR. How are you, Mark? Very well, yeah. Very well, thank you. Brilliant. Thanks for being on the show with us today. Uh, Mark, I'm not going to waste any time. We'll get straight into it. Let us listen, us, ourselves know even, where, you know, where did the coaching journey start? Because it's quite an interesting one. Uh, it started really... Um... I guess I was a, a young professional at Leicester for a couple of years and then different background in the city, which you, you know about. And then um, for, for me, really, it was playing conference football um, and, and traveling, traveling with the bank, living in Charlotte in North Carolina, living in, in uh, Chicago, working in New York, working in Asia. But wherever I went, I just, just coached, not through um, a, a direct aim to do so more just purely by chance you know Charlotte I would coach the bank team or I'd coach the village team or I'd coach you know I'd, I'd see some girls under nines or kids under 11s and you just end up coaching them in those days if you spoke with a British accent they assumed you played football therefore you must be able to coach was almost the you know the, the guideline so I found myself unwittingly uh, coaching a number of different age groups you know high schools um, UNCs and, and different different levels of player um, and that went right the way through. I went back to London and worked, obviously, then overseas against Chicago in 96. And it wasn't until 2001 when my son, who was then eight, um, was asked to go to Watford Academy. And people talked, the coaches talked about background and did you play and whatever else. And they asked me what badge I had. And, and literally, I had no idea, excuse my ignorance, about qualifications. So that was it, really, as that was the... That was the uh, the blue touch paper being lit. And, and from that moment on, I quickly got my one, two, and three. Uh, worked hard to get on my level four, my A license. And and uh, now I'm working part-time at Watford at the same time as being in the city. So combined you know, a really heavy workload. But when you have that when you have that ambition now and you've got that burning desire to, to make a career change, uh, you had to have that period of transition. Uh, but that was it. So, you know, from there, I... I was confident I got my A license. I'm now in a good position. I wanted to leave the city in a well-paid job, but I knew I had to also improve my knowledge depth. So I spent a year traveling around Europe, uh, literally cold calling a number of clubs, just literally phoning the front desk, you know, can I speak to the director, please? 
um, no, 50 times, 60 times, and then finally you get through. And a sport in Lisbon, a really good friend called Diogo Matos at Sporting Lisbon, got me in. And once the doors open, yeah, it's once that persistence gets paid off, I suppose, then he opened doors to Ajax and to PSV and to Barcelona and Dortmund. And, and suddenly I find myself visiting some of the biggest clubs in Europe for a year and just really improving my knowledge and depth of education. And just, just on that, you know, you talk to about how difficult that can be, you know, 50, 50 plus cold calls or emails, whatever you want, not getting any opportunities, not, sometimes not even getting a response to even say, you know what, we can't do anything for you. Just sometimes getting complete, you know. Oh, no, no, complete blanks. I mean, and without being rude to these clubs, they must get numerous such requests, you know. And I'm saying, can I come and speak to someone for half an hour? Because I'm thinking to myself that I can, I've got a, a different background, but a competitive one in terms of finance. Therefore, I can share something with them. So I knew that if I could get in front of them, I could hopefully sell myself. Um, not in an arrogant way, but I was confident of that. But it's getting in front of them, yes. And, it's, and I understand that people phone, I must get you know, five, six requests a day to come and visit. And you have to be polite, respectful, but you can't, you can't accept all of these offers because you, you're too busy. So I understand exactly where they were. And I'm very thankful. And Diogo was literally, do you play golf? Yes. Get yourself over here. Sport Lisbon golf day tomorrow. Be my partner. That gives you five hours with me. And he was just saying that I maximise his time. You know, yeah. five hours on the golf course. And that was it. We got on great. We played golf. I beat him down the last, which went down really well with him. And, um, but from that moment on, I spent a week there, flew back home, went back for a second week. And really got to know him as a, a really good friend who, who opened so many doors. He's now working for, for FIFA in a really high position. Um, but as I say, it just, shows, just goes to show you that if you are persistent, hopefully you get your break. Definitely. I think you're just another thing that I kind of want to pick up on that you touched there about that confidence that you need to have within yourself. And I think there's a lot of coaches probably listening to this, maybe not too sure what that's, where they should be confident with or what they should be confident with within themselves. You just talk to about what it was about that particular skill set that you felt that you were really kind of built that confidence in it. Was that something that you felt that was transferable from your, I guess, your banking uh, background? And Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I'll say that because uh, I'll give an example. When I came back from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, it was 1986. And I've been over there and I, I was offered a green card to stay in the States. But I wanted to come back to London because of the time zone. London's such a big financial center because of the obviously many reasons, but the beauty of the time zone, you know, you get Asia's afternoon, you get all of Europe's morning, you get New York coming in and then you get LA in the afternoon. And so it's a perfect time zone. I wanted to be in that time zone. So I came back and they gave me a currency pair. I was trading currencies, buying one currency, selling another. And they gave me dollars against Japanese yen, dollar yen. And they had no natural business. They had no core customers in that currency pair. So I'm sitting at a desk. When you go away overseas, you come back, sometimes you're, you're a spare part. So I came back and uh, I cold called all the Japanese banks and Asian banks, Singapore, Hong Kong, and I couldn't get anything. You know, but, but I'm talking about five months. I'm cold called every day, getting frustrated, couldn't get anything. And then finally, I flew over there, got a visit by chance. Someone dropped out, got a visit. And I went over there and I took over. They all play golf and they all love whiskey. That's basically, in those days, that was the Japanese senior bankers. They all loved their golf and always talk about their famous nips of whiskey. So I just went there armed with sleeves of golf balls and as much whiskey as I could take through duty free at the time. And, and that was it. And, it. and I came back and literally the first Monday back, my screen lit up with Dolly in calls out of Asia because you've taken the time to go and see them. So that the, the, the people strength, 
you know they they really appreciate you going out there and taking that time emails texts whatsapps are too easy you've got to you've got to go and look people in the face in the eye to eye the old saying so i'd done that in the city so for me in football i just needed to get in front of them a bit like getting to japan getting to tokyo do you think that approach could still work because you know, obviously like I said, it's becoming increasingly harder obviously the, the market in terms of competitiveness of coaches trying to get in the industry I think has inflated massively over the, over the recent years with you know everyone left right and centre trying to become a, a, the next big coach or trying to get into the academy programme or even to the elite game at, at the senior level do you think that approach can still work or do you think there's some maybe some strategies that maybe have been gone up you know a bit outdated in that respect and I think even down to from sending an email to, you know, even just sending the odd, odd letter. Do you think maybe sending a letter to someone could still have a good effect? When was the last time you received a handwritten letter? Well, um, this is really, this is why I asked, yeah. I don't want to sound like an antiquated dinosaur, far from it, but people talk to me about, um, now people's skills not needed anymore. You know, you don't need to do that. You can work from here. You haven't got to travel to there. There's nothing better than someone taking the time out to come and, and sell themselves. I get emails. Um, I want to... I want to be the next Pep Guardiola. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a level one coach working at, you know, Reggae Rovers, and I think I should be working at pro level. What advice would you give me? And it's nonsensical. And, and you must get, as I kid you not, 20 a week of such, such approaches and requests and inquiries. And it's when you hear the sensible one, you, you hear the people who, you have to work. Hard work underpins everything. And anyone that thinks you can go from... A to B purely by chance. No, I, I um, Sean Dyche was my youth team coach at Watford. We're good friends, and obviously he's done another fantastic job at Premier League level. But we had to pump the balls up, you know, drive the minivan, do everything, do long, long hours. I'd, I'd get to Watford training ground at seven in the morning. I'd get home at ten at night when I, this is where I was working at Watford, and and Sean would drive back to Northampton, be back in the morning, long, long hours to get yourself in a position whereby you you have an opportunity to open doors. So the people skills, massive, that will never go away yet. And also that hard work has to underpin everything. And I, I'm, it really does irk you when you get these people saying, uh, I deserve a chance. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're a level one coach. My wife's a level one coach. I'm not being that, that's, that's the lowest. Oh, it's the reality. First step on the ladder. So great, good, you know, congratulations to everyone for the first step. But don't then talk like you deserve to work in the professional game. And that's the problem. They want to bypass the work and get straight to pro license level. Can I just take you back a little bit to something that you said as well there about that hard work? And I think it's, you might just talk in terms of you know, how important it really is to you know, have that hard work, but also make sure that you're not trying to be a version of someone else and yes. staying true to your own qualities and what your strengths are. And you're, you know, in, in that, you know, I'm not going to be a Mark Warburton. So why not I focus on being myself and being the best version of myself rather than trying to be an imitation of Mark Walken. So you, know, you talk about that email, I want to be the next Pep Guardiola. Well, it's not going to happen, is it really? Well, it's, what, I, what I think you have to do is the, the best coaches are the best thieves. The best coaches take the best ideas, the best practices, the best drills, and they tweak them and mould them into something that they can use for their philosophy, their style. Um, and that's the key. So I'm, I'm never trying to be someone else. There was, a, there was a great coach educator who unfortunately recently passed away called Dick Bate. And Dick was the best coach educator in the world bar none. Uh, a font of knowledge. And I had the privilege of working with Dick for two years at Watford. But he was, you know, England, 
FA top tutor and the very, very best. So I want to take certain strengths from Dick. I can't copy Dick. I want to take his organisation, his passion, his delivery, his, his pleasure in seeing people learn and educate themselves. You want to take certain traits and all around the game, you'll meet people and you want to take certain, certain traits from it. That's really, really key. But you have to understand what you are. What is yes? What do you stand for? And at the end of the day, you're trying to achieve, we're all trying to get our players to be better and to become better individuals on and off the pitch and to perform on the pitch in terms of results and, and go as far as they can in the game. Absolutely. That's what we're all, but how we get there is down to you using your personality, your knowledge, your people skills, your man management, all of these various traits that come together and hopefully produce the end product in terms of a quality of coach. Definitely. And just talking about Dick, but you know, you're not the first person to mention Dick in all of our interviews. Just speaking about Dick for a second, what would you say is one of the biggest lessons that you've taken from Dick? Um, his passion for the game. Uh, there's not one thing you say about Dick. You know, you have to talk about his honesty, his integrity, um, his levels of respect, but his passion for the game came across so striking. You know, and uh, as I say, every day for me was like an A license at Watford. He'd come in and he'd say to you, um, he'd look at me in the morning and go, your best Dutch team of all time and why? One o'clock. And he'd walk off and I'd, I'd what? And I'd go and do whatever I had to do. And at five to one, he'd give me the old finger. Come on then. And I'm, now, I'm trying to, now I'm trying to wing it. So I'm going Cruyff. Yeah, he went obvious. Next. And now I'm thinking Nayskins, why? Oh God, Rudy Kroll, why? Oh God, now I'm now I'm struggling. But it, it was just a case of him in in a, in a in the right way improving my education. What was good about those players? What did you learn about those players? What did you like about them? What separated them from the average player to be elite, excellent players? And he would do this. What, what you know? You're playing three-five-two on Saturday. What did you play against it? Or what happened to the now up the wingers? And it was, it was an A licence every single day. It was a privilege to have that access to such an individual of such quality. So there's not one thing about Dick. You know, he's passing the game lost to a true educator and a true icon in, in, in terms of um, coaches benefiting from his wealth of knowledge and experience. Just, you know, there's a couple of things I want to touch on within that. You know, you've talked there about that passion. But I think one key thing that stands out for me is him asking those questions really challenging you to come up with real rationale as to why you're doing or why your thought process is the way it is. And I don't think enough coaches, from personally from my experience, do enough of that. They just go with it. What happens, happens. And they don't really take much time to reflect or even look at why behind the what, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and just to kind of delve deeper then, you know, you, you talk about that passion. Within that, Another, another point I've also discussed with many coaches is that that passion needs to be true. It needs to be authentic. It can't be something you make up. So, you know, if, if for instance, your passion in, is working with the foundation-based players and your, or your passion is working with youth-based you might just talk into, but, you know, from your own experiences, how important it is that coaches do, a, I guess, maybe take that time to self-reflect and ask themselves where they may be best suited rather than just looking at, right, we all need to work in a senior game, we all need to work in a professional development phase because there's a lot of coaches out there probably looking for that and maybe for the wrong reasons quite often because maybe the financial gain is seen more beneficial at that top end of the game. Um, certainly, obviously, at a senior level, but more, more specifically with the professional development phase as opposed to the foundation, foundation phase, rather. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So I get, you know, people write to write into me and say, I want to work my way up and be better and end up at first team level. So I say, why? And they say, well, I want to be first team level. Yeah, why? And they think I'm being sarcastic. I'm not. So I, the one was, I got an under 11 coach, under 12 coach right into me. I said, well, why don't you be the best under 12 coach in London? Then be the best under 12 coach in the Southern Counties and then be recognised nationally as one of the very best under 12 coaches. And, he, and you can see that the mind was thinking, he went, well, I just want to work first team. And there's no logic to it. It's almost like, you know, you're, you're seen, unless you're with the first team, you haven't got that kudos. I always thought, yes, I never had to play. I, I was only a, a couple of years of pro and I was a bang average conference player. That was, that's what I was. So I had never had the playing career of a Gerard, Stephen Gerard or Frank Lampard or Wayne Rooney, none of that. So I always naturally presumed I'd work in the academy. Now, having come out of a really you know responsible job in a city i take this the right way i was never just going to be uh yes sir no sir coach i'd have to have a position where i could impact change so i, I wanted to be academy director at a top six premier league club that was my ambition but i always knew that i had to be very very good at it so i spent time with uh, I've coach all the ages great experience working across them because you have to have that but i never for one second thought the first team would even be an option not for one second but all the work done with the youth levels and, you know, I'm doing the reserves and the youth team during the day with Eddie Boothroyd and Dick, etc., and Sean Dyche and Malky Mackay and Brendan. And then in the evening, I'm coaching the nines and then the 14s and the 15s and 16s. So you have a really broad depth of education. Again, never thinking I'll be with the first team. So it does amaze me when people only ever seem to be, they think their street cred, their kudos will only come if they're first team. And there's you know, some really talented coaches who could specialise in those key areas of 11 to 6, 11 to 18, and be the very best in the country if they want to be. Mm. I think just on that, you know, you talk there about Dick Bate being as, you know, excellent coach and all, this, all the accolades, you know, and all the, I guess, the endorsements that he's had amongst many people. But is, you know, equally with someone like Pete Sturgis, for instance, who's a, you know, a specialist in the foundation phase and a, an excellent one at that. No, but just... You know, you talked there about your career, not being a, you know, I guess a, a major ex-pro. And you're asking yourself, you know, never have really having it in your mind as to when that first team, you know, that first team in Brat might not even be a thing for you. When did that start to change? When did you feel like that? that this is an avenue that is starting to open up. It only changed really. Uh, bear in mind, I've gone around Europe, look at the academies, you know, time, a lot of time spent at Barcelona, at La Masia. Ajax, at Sporting, as I mentioned, at Borussia, PSG, and elect all these various clubs. And obviously the likes of John McDermott at Tottenham, John's outstanding, now gone with the FA, um, but Neil Barth at Chelsea, and all these various clubs, Frank McParland, outstanding at Liverpool, all of these people. So I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking I'm, I want to be the very, very best academy director. And it wasn't until I got a phone call, um, I'd left Watford, I'd fallen out with an individual at Watford who was, I learned from, I learned from his... Uh, power grab, shall we say. And uh, I got a phone call from Matthew Brennan, the owner of Brentford. And I've met Matthew um, through a friend. And at the time, he couldn't buy Brentford. And Watford were in dire straits financially. And I inquired as whether Matthew would be interested in buying Watford. Got on really well with him. And he watched the work and vice versa. Got a phone call at one in the morning. He'd just removed Andy Scott. And he said, would you come and coach the first team for me? And that was it. So he has out the blue... I get a phone call at one in the morning. I kid you not, I'm on my PC going through the Brentford squad who in League One. They were 18th in League One. 
and I'm learning the names of Gary and Charlie McDonald and guys Arthur and Leon Leg and was that on Google or was that on Football Manager that you whatever it was wherever wherever I looked at in the morning with a lot of coffee I'm trying to find out the various oh I wanted to make sure that when I turned up I always thought to myself go back the kids in Charlotte North Carolina on coaching them I always thought make sure they enjoy it make sure whoever you work with whether it's England internationals or whether you're working with under nine boys or girls make sure they enjoy the session so I knew that I had to speak to them like men. I had to get their attention quickly and early. Uh, Nicky Forster was the player that they was there, but never taken a session in his life, Nicky. Great guy, but I was a coach. He was still a player, um, top player. But I, I, I was taking a session. So I knew what I had to do. So I, was, I had that confidence you know, from working with the reserves and youth teams and all the various age groups and the city back kind of dealing with people. As long as you treat them respectfully. I'm all about my, my big, big thing is environment you create there is one of respect how you talk to people is huge uh, society is changing so that's my big bugbear so to speak so I, I went I went there I knew their names I set a session up um, spoke to them well told them what they could expect from us and it went really well and I just found it was I didn't I wasn't phased in terms of uh, worried about it I just presented a session that I knew they'd enjoy that was sharp um, you know, well, clearly organised, knew what we were trying to get out of it, made sure the boys enjoyed it. They came off the pitch buzzing. I was happy. They were happy. And we were in a good place. Yeah, and just, um, just on that, Mark, um, you've already started uh, touching it a bit earlier in, in terms of, like, not necessarily having that, like, high uh, professional uh, level experience. But conference is still a decent level. I think you're, you need to give yourself some merit for that. But... Um, uh, how did you go about like bringing that gap? So when you started coaching, did you? Ha I know you um you had an, an idea that you weren't going to be the yes sir, no sir sort of coach there, and you wanted to be do the academy director sort of role. But were you thinking that really like when you just started, or at that point, is it just because of your enjoyment of the game that you still wanted to just be involved in the coaching aspect? No, I was very aware, Ben. I I knew that as I say, I, I cut back on that playing career, but. When you walk into the room, someone like Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard, these are world-class international players. Yeah. So they immediately have the audience here because of their playing career. Now, of course, over time, you have to show them your coaching, your management. But I never had that. What I did have, though, I just, I, I, you always look at a selling point. You say, where am I strong? Where am I weak? So I was weak in terms of my playing career. Now, when I later on down the line, I meet Davey Weir, obviously a top, top player. Yeah. Um, someone who I, um, we met, I had a, we set up a European tournament called Next Gen Series. Oh, yeah. uh, we had 24 of the biggest clubs in Europe in this tournament, under 19, um, that UEFA kindly killed in the, in the third year. But we had that and Davey was trying to get, David Moyes wanted Everton in the tournament and David Weir would have taken the team. So I met David and a uh, great guy, but I knew David, we worked together for a long time now and uh, top man. But that, that's my weakness of a playing career field because... David Weir's had an outstanding playing career, you know, so that was, that was the weakness field. Where's, where's my strength? And I'm looking at it going, well, what do I do well? What do I as a person do well? And I've got a background on the financial side. Players love holidays, cars, money. They're the same as any competitive young guy or woman. They want the things we all, we all want. But I had the, back, the financial background and they love the art. When you hear them talk about the amounts, we would turn over billions of dollars every day not millions but billions of dollars every day when they heard that suddenly they go whoa so you had a selling point you had a hook to say this is what i did i didn't i can't play football like you 
but we bought and sold, you know, three billion dollars last the week. Same cause. Yeah, it, 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 <laughs> exactly that. Exactly yeah. that. I don't like to say that sounds really materialistic, <laughs> but I can. I, I'm not walking in or coming in a bike a on the back. Of, you know, it's one of those. So uh, that was my selling point, and that's what really works. That really works. So you know, you can go in there, and when they ask, "What did you? What did you do?" They're always going to say, "What? What did you do then?" This is what I did. This yeah. is what I did. I was in charge of these guys doing this, earning that. Not in terms of your salary, but for the for the company. That's what we did. Yeah. Whoa. Now, now you've got their attention. So yeah. again, you're showing that you're organized, you're showing that you're competitive, you're showing that you're, you have good knowledge, and you're making sure that the environment is one that they can enjoy coming to work in and they can develop in. Our job has to be, Ben, to put a framework in place that makes them better. Yeah. On and off the pitch, makes them better. If you put that framework in place, an environment that is uh, conducive to learning and development, then you're in a really good place. You know, I'm I'm kind of uh, happy that you've uh, you've said that as a, on being a first team manager because uh, a lot of coaches have this sort of um, dichotomy where they look at development and the competition different. But I feel I feel like in my opinion, whatever level it is, they're learning something. It may be that they're learning the way you want them to play. It may be that they're learning how to develop themselves to fit into the sort of um, tactics or strategies that you want them to do or improve themselves just in general, but it's learning that's still part of it. Like, um, so uh, as you're going on, you're, you were saying a few names there and whatnot, and you, you were linking them to the opportunities that you got. Can you just touch a bit there about the importance of the networking, like how important it is to network within football? And I can imagine that, um, in your um, experience in banking, that that was a really integral part of it as well. It was, yeah, it really was. You know, I hop back to that Tokyo thing, and literally, by I took the time to go over those, and it pretty by chance as well, Ben. So one of my colleagues, senior guy who was meant to go fell ill, and I went the following day, 1987, to to, to Tokyo for 10 days, and uh, as I said, I'm armed with gold, sleeves of golf balls and bottles of whiskey, and it, it sounds a bit bizarre, but you also you had to go to the interpreter so you would speak on a like a Reuters machine like this machine um and you're speaking to what you think is your colleague at this bank you're not you're speaking to the the young kid out of the american university because the trader never spoke english so now you're at dinner and you give them some golf balls and you're speaking through an 18 year old 20 year old you know interpreter to go back really hard and really challenging really really challenging but you've got to get those you've got to find a relationship because that man or that woman holds a key to you getting business. So that was the same thing. So you had to network. It's how you sell yourself. And you can't come across as arrogant and brash. And some of the males I get, you know, Yaz just asked me, I get, you know, I, I consider myself to be a future England coach. And what? You know, where, where does that come from? Why would you open up a letter or a LinkedIn message starting with that? You know, but it's, so how you sell yourself, the impression that you create, um, what what memories do you leave with that person? Does he go, oh, Ben's a good guy, or does he go, oh, Ben was a pain in the back? How how does he how does he do it? And and that's or she do it rather. And and that's so important. So selling yourself, networking, you've got to be consistent, you've got to maintain integrity, you've got to recognise sometimes you're banging your head against a brick wall. As I say, the fifty calls, I'm calling and calling. I tried to get to Barcelona. A stupidly in advance. So I think about it now, what a, what an idiot to try and why would they take Michael not have fifty a day? But I got in via Diego Matos just bought in Lisbon. Then they welcomed me with open arms. Mm. Couldn't have been more polite and courteous. But you have to find a way in. 
And sometimes, you know, going in through the back door as opposed to trying to bang down the front door is the best way of doing it. So a very, very important point that you make to network well, to uh, understand it's got to be two-way. Right? You know, if I'm coming to you, I've got to make sure I give you something back. Exactly that, yeah. And, and it's, I don't mean money partially that. I mean, I mean, it can be, you know, talking about something, a drill, it can be a contact, it can be anything, but people are very, very busy in all walks of life and you've got to make sure that the relationship is two-way and beneficial for all. And as I say, you just remain honest and in, in maintain integrity throughout and respect. So I think you'd be in a good place. Definitely. I just want to take you uh, back to a little bit. You know, you said there, you got that 1am call, come in to Brentford, do a first, you know, you're searching your football manager, you Google to find out who the players are. Wiping my eyes at the same time. <laughs> And all the coffee and whatnot. Your role initially at Brentford was a sporting director, wasn't it? No, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. It's first to win in 18th in League One. I think we finished 10th in League One that season. So I was really pleased that six-month period from January through to the end of the season. The boys responded really well, and I wanted the job then. Yes, I wanted the first team manager's job. And and Matthew, who's so sharp, so intelligent, um, he wanted me to become sporting director and made Uwe Rosler the German uh, international Man City player as manager and I was angry. I was, I was miffed, but um, it was a great opportunity. You, you know, put me in charge of the first team, in charge of the academy, in charge of all the staff. I was in charge of analysis, sports science, medical, everything. So really enjoyed that side of it. And it was a great two years to be able to work on the environment. The number of the staff that we hired are still there now. We remember doing so well. So delighted with that, very proud of that fact. And I enjoyed that. I learned how to deal with agents. Um, again, you know, the agents won, just be honest with them. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I was never into all this. I came from the city world where there's my price, etc. I don't do all this, you know, here's two grand a week, no six grand a week, no two and a half, no five and a half, no, all that nonsense. We would say, this is what we do. There's our commission that we pay. And in that two years, we got a lot of young players in and likes of Adam Forshaw and Bidwell and, you know, you look at James Tarkowski who came in and Yotta and the Bayou and, and uh, Pritchard, all these guys have gone on Premier League careers over the coming 18 months, two years with Frank coming in and, and, and David, Frank McPahn, David Weir. We had a really good setup there. But that, that sport and director two-year period really allowed me as to, to broaden my education further. And again, you can start to develop your own reputation within the game in terms of how you conduct yourself, how you go about your business and how, obviously, how the the players were responding to that. And then just you know, obviously starting off as sporting director, how did you eventually get to that first team manager's role then? Um, it got to November, 20 months down the line, and Uwe was approached by Wigan, who were then just come out of the Premier League, were a bigger club than Brentford, obviously, at the time. And um, he, he wanted to go to Wigan. His family are based in Manchester. It was a great move for him. Uh, and fully understood it. And uh, that was on the Thursday, and I think on, we had a game on the Saturday, which uh, I let, I, I, let, I um, had one of the goalkeeping coach take, to, and I was there in the stand watching it and helping, et cetera. Uh, and then on, on the Sunday, I was going to an Arsenal game. I'm a Spurs fan, but I was going to watch an Arsenal game. And uh, I was ironing a shirt to go to the Arsenal game and be in the box. And I uh, got a phone call from Matthew to offer me the job of first-team manager. And that was it. So... Um, obviously very, very thankful. We'll always be thankful to Matthew for that trust he showed in me and the opportunity he afforded me. And my, I immediately phoned David Weir. So, David, would you like to be my assistant? And uh, thankfully on the Monday, David came down with a nice bit of lunch and he agreed to that. 
and that was it. Yes, we, we, we now started. I'm sitting here thinking, well, here's me thinking I'd never get near first team. I'm now in charge of a, a League One club. I forget where we were, top 10 in League One. Somewhere we're doing, doing well. And um, we're in a good position. And thankfully, we finished off that year by, by then getting promoted with Wolves. We had a great run, I think, unbeaten in 20 odd games and had a really good run. And then the following year, of course, we got to the playoffs, the Premier League as well. So we had a really, really bootful couple of years. You just talked there about you know, having a very successful first season. What would you say were some of the key ingredients to the success in that, in that period? Uh, I knew the players. I'd signed most of the players. Um, and they knew me in terms... I would never... Just go back to the sporting director role. People say to me about what the key traits for a sporting director. Two things. Yes. One, you have to get on with the manager. Always. So you have to work so closely together. And you've got to be honest, respectful and maintain integrity. So I would never, for example, put a tracksuit on and go onto the pitch. Now, every, every bone in my body is aching to get on the pitch and, and work with the players. But that was Uwe's domain. That was his environment. And as sporting director, it wasn't right. I'd obviously watch training if I was travelling to look at players. I'd watch training. I'd always give him my opinion. We'd have coffee every day. We'd have dinner twice a week. You know, 10 phone calls, 20 phone calls a day, whatever it may be. But I would not cross that, that line, so to speak, to get into, into the sport director. And, but I knew the players. So when I got the manager's job, the players knew who I was, what I stood for. The staff all knew me because I'd hired most of them. And it was easy for me then to move on. And I could really lay down the laws of the, the environment, the type of environment I wanted, how we spoke to people. You know, I'd always rather have leaner than fatter. I hate excess bodies around. I'd rather challenge people to work harder, produce more and incentivize them. Uh, and it worked well. It worked well, yes. People were very happy. The white people were happy to buy into that. We worked long hours. We were a lean team. Um, but the players were responding really well. The recruitment with Frank and the parliament was outstanding. As I say, people like James Tarkowski now at Burnley, Andre Gray now at Watford, Yotta now at Aston Villa, Pritchard, obviously moved for 12 million quid to Huddersfield in the Premier League. All of these various players on the Bayou, uh, Button at Brighton, you know, Harley Dean at Birmingham, Jake Bibble at Swansea, all of these guys have gone on to have excellent careers. So we were really happy with the recruitment. But we had a good team. We had a really good team. The owner, Matthew, was superb in his backing of us uh, and we surprised a lot of people. Well, let's talk there a bit about, you know, about not just the players, but obviously yourself, you know, going on to have some successful careers beyond that time at Brentford. You've had two years at Brentford, a season and a half almost, just over yeah. a season and a half, and you've now ended up eventually at Rangers. Can you talk to us a bit about that? At QPI, I mean. The, uh, old uh, when, <laughs> you know, before we even get to that, there was, there's quite an interesting story around the Brentford thing, isn't it? You had the, this whole thing about the bonuses, didn't you? To help keep the players motivated. Yeah, I mean, Matthew, the owner's obviously got a, financial, a big financial background, and uh, I came from a city culture. I mean, they, Listen, you could be left-wing, right-wing, whatever your political you know, thoughts or ideals are. Bonuses in the city are only paid to people who earn the money. So if you have a trader who makes you $10 million profit and he gets paid 10% bonus, you're still $9 million better off. You know, I, I read some scandalous headlines. So it, it's, you, you've got to pay these bonuses. So that culture of, of rewarding success to me was natural. I'd had 20-odd years of that. Uh, and Matthew the same. Uh, and we just put a really aggressive one in. Why should, you know, we were coming back from Hartlepool in that first six months with a shocking result. They'd lost 2-0, played poorly. And I heard one player say, at least I get my appearance money. And I'm thinking, why do you get appearance money? Why should you get paid for appearing when you get paid for that in your basic salary anyway? 
and you've lost. So yes. things like, you know, when you have players who might be on, I don't know, a thousand pound appearance, say, no, 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 nothing for, nothing for a draw, nothing for a loss, but three grand for a win. That type of, you know, incentivize them, you know, set piece, get awarded for scoring a set piece, get, get deducted the same amount for conceding a set piece. All of these various traits, number of points, number of goal difference. You know, so if you look at the championship, over 65 points gets you, you know, up top eight and pushing on. So, right, every point above 64 will be X amount in your bonus pool. All of these type of incentives just drives the boys on. And you had a Brentford team who were favourites for relegation, third smallest budget, really aggressive bonus scheme, and the boys just went for it, properly went for it. And, and I love that uh, focus and desire. The likes of Jonathan Douglas, who an outstanding leader, driver, um, you know, could be surly at times, Dougie, but a top player, and he just really drove the boys forward. You know, that's um, that's quite quite an interesting uh, scheme that you had there. And even when you hear of, like, interviews from the players of that of, of their time, they do talk about that incentive thing of actually thinking of it uh, whilst they're on the pitch there. Um, what other sort of um, methods do you use to, uh, like, motivate players? I know that you don't have to do that much per se at that level, but it's, the minor, it's like those minor differences that make a huge difference on the pitch, uh, at that sort of level there. So is there anything particularly on the day-to-day in training that um, that you may employ in the environment or in the training sessions that do so? Now, I mean, the, the obvious thing to say, Ben, is to improve, you know, the, the, where they go to work every day. So the actual, the hard, the hard side of it in terms of how good the food in the canteen, the quality of the training pitches, the quality of the gym and the gym equipment, mm. you know, uh, the quality of the medical room, the staff, the analysis, all of the, you know, the data that we, all of this type of support network is obviously massively important. But the most important thing is developing a relationship with the players and making sure they trust you, yeah. you know, give them, giving them every reason to, to trust you. So how you go, again, go back to the environment, how you speak to people. You're going to drop someone. You don't say, oh, you're not playing Sunday, son. That's not good enough. That's like, call them in. You're not going to be in my team on Saturday. This is the reason why. This is what I need to see from you. This is why I'm picking him. And this is what I'm looking for. And this is how we're going to get you to where we need you to be. Yeah. So they may not like the news, but at least you've done it respectfully. You've told them. You've maintained honesty and integrity. And again, timekeeping. You know, we had a... I won't say how it'd be too obvious, but I was at a big club. And first four games, the meeting and analysis will be at 1.15 in the afternoon. And our analysis every day, um, pre-COVID, is... 10, 12 minutes of, you know, what we did at the weekend, what we did well, could do better, our forthcoming opponents, in possession, out possession, how we're going to hurt them, all this sort of structured work. And we had one guy and I put a clock up and I put a sign up saying, early is on time, on time is late. So he thought it was great, this player, big player, to get in at 1.14 and 50 seconds and stroll in, smiling, saying, all right, Gaffer, as if to say he was being really cool. And he couldn't work out. It took him four games to work out that he wasn't playing, why he wasn't playing. But it's that type of thing. You haven't got to embarrass them. You haven't got to shame them. But when they knock on your door, you say, well, if you think it's cool to get in at 1.14 and 55 seconds for one fifteen meeting, no problem. I think it's cool not to pick you. All right. And then lo and behold, he's there at 10 past one the next meeting, sitting there first in the front row. But it, it, you get your point across. And uh, again, it's, it's how you tell people because... Society is changing. So um, we were at Glasgow Rangers and a, and a great group of people, you know, people like Lee Wallace and Kenny Miller, Nico Cranjot, some really good people and the young ones that came up there. Um, 
and we wanted certain things. How can we get it better? We got a whiteboard up. What would what are the small details that would make things better? One guy put up a hairdryer in a in a way in a home dressing room. Others talked about uh, more food or more this or the hydrotherapy pool or whatever it may be. But it's all anonymous. Mm. So I put up there collar and tie for away games because you wear them at home at iBox in front of fifty thousand. You wear your collar and tie, but. But away, you barely go attract you. But Rangers have a, in Scotland, they're the two. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Biggest club, Rangers and Celtic. So they have this image that I wanted to really enhance. And um, so I wrote up there anonymously, wear collar and tie. So I said to the player, what do you think about the board? Yeah, great ideas. All good? Yeah, all good. Done. We got, if I'd have said to them, you're wearing collar and tie away, oh, Gaffer, come on. But by saying, put it up on the board and them saying that's all good, it was done. So I think the most important thing, Ben, is to make sure you're honest with them and the environment you create is geared towards making them better. Yeah. When they drive to work in the morning, they've got to enjoy it. Whatever, if you're a bricklayer or a cab driver or work in a bank or whatever, or a doctor, whatever job you do, if you enjoy going to work, your end product will be of a higher quality. And that's got to be our job as football coaches and managers to make sure that environment is as good and as productive as we can make it. Definitely. And you've already started to touch there on, on Rangers. It's, it's a massive club and I think I'm even understating it by, by saying that. And the point of when you came in uh, was obviously after the administration uh, happened and they consequently got relegated. Um, you got the league and cup double in your first season there. And I feel like on paper, people will underestimate that thinking that, oh, Rangers are meant to go up. But I can imagine the expectations that were around you was heavy. And how did you deal with that pressure to kind of still conduct yourself in the same way that you would usually do in, the, in, in any managerial role that you do? It was a really steep learning curve. And I'm lucky to have David Weir. Don't forget, David Weir captained them in the UEFA Cup final age, yeah. 41, I think it was. But he, you know, he, I, had some, I was very lucky. My CV was strong from Brentford, so I had some really nice offers. Very, very fortunate. But um, when that size of club comes calling, you know, you, you are privileged, really privileged. Um, but the, the board made it very clear. Promotion was non-negotiable first year. But we only had nine players in the first day. Literally had nine players. They'd let 13 go. I think it was 11 or 13 go. And we had nine players. So we had to recruit really quickly with no money, minimal money. Um, and still, all the eyes were on them. I mean, it's an unbelievable... If you haven't been there, it's an unbelievable theatre of football. You know, 50,000 raw in a, a eye box is a quite incredible... Um, yeah, it really is. And it's a fantastic, as I say, privilege to be there. But you've got to deal with this expectation. And David Weir always said to me, if you're nil-nil at half-time at Ibox, they'll boo at nil-nil. 
absolutely boo you off the pitch. But then they'll cheer you coming out after half time again. And that's just the nature of Rangers. So you've got to get used to that. You know, wherever you go, in the, it's a bubble that you cannot believe. You, you guys love football. But you're talking about a player can't go and buy a loaf of bread. A player can't go. Anywhere you go, you are bang. It's, the passion for football is so high. But the fans are magnificent and the theatre is magnificent. But you've got to deal with the media. There's the steepest learning curve. 20 pages every day on Rangers and Celtic. Radio shows every night. If they haven't got anything to, sell, to, to, to talk about, they'll make it up. So you've got to deal with you know, what you say. Every word you say can be taken, used out of context. And it's a magnificent learning curve. You know, because when you come back down south, after dealing with Glasgow Rangers, um, you can deal with anything. Walk in the park, I can imagine. Well, um, I went to Nottingham Forest, who are twice European champions, and the media guy said, it's going to be about 15 minutes. Is that okay? Media in Scotland was like, you know, minimum two and a half hours and, and loads more on top. You had BBC Scotland, you know, you had Five Love, you had Sky Sports, you had the Sundays, you had the Dailies, you had the, the club chat. It was incredible. But again, it, it's a privilege because you're, Rangers, you're manager of Rangers. You know, it's a globally recognised club. And uh, anyone who said, no, you'd, you'd, A, you'd walk away from it, which is nonsense. And B, would say it wasn't a privilege. It's, it's talking... It's talking absolute nonsense because it really is. We work as coaches and managers to be privileged enough to take those positions. Definitely. You just touched on there, Mark, you know, about it being a massive difference just from, just from uh, dealing with the media perspective in general. But that wasn't the only difference you had when you went to Nottingham Forest. A bit, of a, a bit, bit more of a unsuccessful time, shall we say, as opposed to it was at Rangers and your, your period at Brentford. Why do you think that was? What, were the, you know, what would you think? <laughs> This is, this is where you get angry as a coach, yes, because you go in there and then the bottom three, Nottingham Forest, and the, and the mandate was to keep them up. And we, in, the last, and, in the last game, we had to better Blackburn score. Um, and we had six or seven academy kids in the team, went young, achieved it and stayed up. So straight away in the first season, you've kept them in the division. Then the mandate for the second year, or the, the first full season, was was threefold. It was consolidate mid-table. It was reduce the size of the squad, which was 35, 36 when we went in there, and reduce the average age, which was 29 and a half. You know, there's a lot of our senior players, a lot of senior players, Ross McCormack, Jacobs, Matt Mills, etc. So at Christmas of that first full season, when we were sat on December 31st, we're 12th in the table. Yeah, the size of the squad is 23. And the average age in the last two games have been 22 years and 10 months. So you mm. go, KPI, you hit every single KPI and you're in great position and you get sacked. And I'm not going to go at you here, by the way. You're saying to me, why didn't it work out? You tell me. Because you get sacked and it reads in your CV, manager sacked. You go, well, I've hit my KPIs. And I came from a background in the city where there's your KPIs, there's your target. If you hit them, you're in good shape. We were exactly on every single KPI. Go back to Glasgow Rangers. You, the, the mandate was European football third year, non-negotiable. We're second in the table because you're 20 points behind Celtic, sacked. But we're, we're second. We're, still we're bang on target. But then you realise that the football stirs emotion and passion and logical thinking and business thinking goes out the window. So because we had lost two home games, we were 12th in the table for us with a really, really young team. Just on that, you know, 
you talk, you, you, I think you spot on, absolutely agree. You know, if you're hitting those KPIs, these are the KPIs that have been set. I've hit them, so what's the issue sort of thing? Yeah. How does that then get justified? You know, if, 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 if it doesn't work out, what is the reason or, I guess, the rationale in, or better yet, what is the excuse for, for the way to end things in that manner? No, it's nothing you get... Um, I mean, the manager would, any manager will tell you, a coach will tell you, you get, the, you get called in on, on New Year's Eve and the chairman says, um, some bad news, they want to change the direction. What, do, what does that mean? You want to change it. So, hey, listen, it, that's the nature of the business. So you have to get used to it. You have to get thick skin. You have to get used to it. But it still hurts because you're a professional uh, and you're human. And, and it still look, you look at your CV and goes, sat. Sat from Glasgow Rangers. Why? Sat. And those type of things really hurt you. If you're, if you're 19th in the table and you're really struggling and you're 20th in the table and you've lost, you know, you've, you've spent loads of money and you know, I understand, then you've got to go. That's nature. But I think we're in a, we're in a, in a, a pastime, past we're in a business here where uh, emotions run so high. And as I said, we have a lot of foreign owners, which is obviously very good for the game in terms of investment and variety, but also their, their mindset changes very, very quickly. You know, when you look at, I look at some clubs, some of the Spanish clubs we've had, I read yesterday one Spanish club has had six sporting directors and six managers in six years. How can, yeah. you expect, how can you expect to have continuity and develop a philosophy and ethos and build a platform and the fans can engage with when it's can change, 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 change. So it's, for me, it's a, you have to recognise it's a very, very emotional business. Um, what, what it, what's, you know, you, you win a game of football, you, get, you know, these, these things here. People who watch social media, it, it, it's, it's a nightmare, yes. Why people bother to do it? You get, you get some absolute idiots, you know, sack him, new contract, offer him a new contract, we won a game, sack him. And I've got really clever people, you know, really clever people, who are CEOs now of different clubs, and I talk to them, and their own clubs are different. You know, it might be Arsenal, Tottenham, or Liverpool. And I hear them say, you know, Wenger must go, Wenger must go. Why? We've lost three in a row. Then they, win, then they beat Liverpool. Oh, he must sign a new contract. <laughs> this is someone's career. This is someone's life. This is a business making long-term decisions. And yet yeah. you're changing with the wind. And it's, as I say, for me, that's football. We have to get used to it. I'm not saying it's right. It won't change anytime soon, yes. And um, as I say, you just have to have a thick skin and work hard and hope that your efforts are recognised and rewarded. Definitely, you know, just touching on it. So you've now, you know, your time at Rotten Forest has come to an end. You had a brief bit of time out of the game before you eventually went and ended up at QPR. Just out of curiosity, what does a football manager do in that in that time frame? Is it that I just gathering the thoughts or no? No, you. Um, when I left Glasgow Rangers, I got more with Brendan. Brendan was at Celtic and uh, was, said some nice things and said to me, "Take some time out, take six months out." But I'd never not worked in my life. And I was at being at home for two weeks and then a call came in from Forest. It's hard to tell a club of that stature. Um, so that happened. When I left uh, Forest, I had longer out than I anticipated. I, I thought, right, take six months out. The CV was still strong, strong from Scotland, strong from Brentford. Forest people would see what we were doing. So uh, you anticipate you get back in. So I'd, I'd reviewed time. I was angry, really angry at what happened. But you can chill out. You can spend a bit of time with family, a bit of golf go and visit good friends in the game. Now you want to start learning, keep learning. And then I, I, I'm intrigued by the MLS. So I spent time in uh, Boston Revolution with Brad Friedel when he was coached there. 
I spent time in New York City. I spent time in Seattle, flew out of Seattle and spent time with Damien Roden, top guy, who was at the Sounders, who won the title that year, and San Jose. So basically, it proved my knowledge of the MLS. Really improved it. And uh, I, I, was, I was very close to getting two jobs in the MLS. But what I actually, I didn't get them, but what I liked was the fact they wanted to keep it domestic. They wanted to keep it domestic, which I, I admire their desire to work within the game and promote their own young coaches. Um, so now I'm frustrated. Now it's sort of 15 months. I'm thinking, well, you know, I was very close to getting a very big job within the game, take the director level, and uh, felt very angry at that as well. Um, and then suddenly QPR called up and said, come and see Les. Speak to Les. Speak to Les, Lee Hoos, the owners. And, and you get a good, a good feeling for an interview. Yes, yeah, you get a good, you know, they ask good questions. You ask good questions and get good answers. Um, and it just feels right. Um, and one that I digress slightly here, but what I do fear for young managing coaches is if they haven't worked for a while and need to work to pay mortgages and you know school or what family and put food on the table, all the normal normal things, then they don't ask the questions at interviews that you have to ask. What do I have budget available? What are my lines of communication? What staff can I bring in? What staff can I remove? All these basic questions that you have to ask, they don't ask them because they feel that if they do ask them they run the risk of losing the job. And all that, all that creates a cycle of failure. Because you boom the failure when they can sack you after six, eight, ten games. Yeah. So, you know, you, you've obviously had that interview at QPR. You said it went quite well. Began your role there. And, you know, you, in your first full season now, it's been almost cut short, hasn't it, really, to an extent. There's been a massive break in that, obviously, with this pandemic. You know, how... How has that changed things for you over the course of the last, you know, few weeks and months now? It does a lot of things, yes. But if I can answer the question in a bigger way first, is when, when a football supporter looks at a result. So right now, look, at we, we Hullock play Middlesbrough right now. I watch it off this chat. And we play Middlesbrough on Sunday. And whatever the result, some football supporters go, oh, Hull got battered or Middlesbrough got battered or whatever it is. You look at the result, you know, Birmingham got smashed last night. No one understands what Peplethet at Birmingham is having to deal with. I don't, in terms of, I don't understand, I, I probably have more than the average football supporter, but has he lost players to contract? Has he lost players who are not playing? Are they injured? How have they responded in, in terms of after the COVID? All this stuff is so difficult. People supporters just look at the result and make comments. And as I say, what you look at with QPR and you look at um, the size of squads, you look at the budget available, look at the disparity of budget, all of these things. You look at Grant McCann at Hull, who lost a number of players, and then he had injuries and whatever else he's dealing with so much. So people go, oh, he's, they're having a tough time. Why? You, I hear, you know, he's got, they've got to change their manager. Why? Grant's doing a great job under really difficult circumstances, but people don't look deeply enough. Um, they just look at the periphery of it and they don't really understand what goes on behind the scenes. So for us at QPR, we were in good shape. You know, we were pre-COVID, six unbeaten, got the press and a good away win, 3-1, and then bang, this happens. And, you know, you have to deal with it then. And all the other clubs have similar issues, but there's no doubt when we use words like unprecedented, they are, yes. They are unprecedented times, so difficult for so many reasons. Players being off the deals and contracts not being accepted and illness and illness, you know, trying to get players fit in a shorter period of time, ensuing injuries and all of these various issues impact squads. And as I say, it's too easy for football supporters to go, oh, look at that, look, what's happened to them? They got beat last night. Why? 
you know, if you really do care about the game and you're in the coaches network, or you're, or you're talking about and you care about coaching, what is that manager dealing with? What is the coach dealing with? What does his squad look like? What's his budget compare? All of these questions would improve your knowledge education of what you face when you actually get a role of this nature. Yeah, for me, um, I agree with you. Um, I feel like people are a bit too surface sometimes when they look at things. And it's a shame that, like, I wish it could be done the same way they kind of do, like, the young ages where they have no league tables. Because once they look at a league table, that's when they judge the, judge the team directly. And unfortunately, every team is in, um, like, different circumstances and have different budgets to work with. Um, like you said, personally, I feel with the budget that you do have at QPR and like the, uh, when you look at the average age that you have from, in terms of your average starting 11, is impressive uh, what you guys are doing. And um, it's only going to lead to a sustainable model um, for them. Uh, in regards to that, uh, with, uh, with coaches and the way they um, look at the game, uh, what sort of uh, aspects do you look for uh, within your team? Like, is it based on the sort of players that you have at your disposal? or um, at your different clubs? Or do you have like a particular way that you, you would like to play regardless of what club you're at? I like, I like Ben, I like players who can dominate a football. I like players who look to take the football. Um, aren't I'm afraid of a mistake. We, we, only, we only ever learn by our mistakes. So you can't say to a player, play out in the back, for example, or take it in a tight area, but don't make a mistake. That doesn't work. They're human beings, they're going to make mistakes. So how you respond, go back to the environment and how you speak to people. You know, so all, all of these, I look for players who enjoy having a football, uh, players who are hungry to learn, players, players who are better than they realise. So, for example, we took a player, Tony Craig, from Millwall to Brentford. Tony was a top Millwall player in terms of his hardest nails defensively, you know, left back, left centre half. But people said to me, he's old school Tony, he heads it and kicks it was exactly how they described it. But Tony could play, but he'd just never been previously challenged to play in a certain team, not being rude to that team, but that team didn't want to play that way. Tony could come in and was a really talented player. But you just got to let players have the opportunity to show what they can do. Now, if a manager says, Ben, I want you to edit and kick into the channel, do that or you won't get picked. You're going to do it. You're going to get it and smash it in the channel. If another manager comes and says, ben, well, <laughs> left or right, left or right but, but, you know, it's, it's one of those where if, whatever the manager wants, you've got to respond to it. That's your job. You know, going back to one of what you said previously, when a player leaves an academy, he's got to be armed with the attributes to deal with whatever manager comes in. One might, one might play a, an aggressive 4-4-2, one might play a 4-4-2 diamond, one might play 4-3-3 with a 2 and a 1. Who knows what they're going to play? But as I say, for me, I, I like players who dominate a football, can embrace a football, brave in a decision-making, uh, keen to learn, uh, young, hungry, yes, but you need your senior mentors as well. Uh, and from there, as I say, recognise what you've got, understand where you need change in the short term, change in the medium term, and change hopefully in the longer term if things are, are going in the right direction. Definitely. And um, just in regards to um, just touching on that sustainable model, obviously QPR are quite big on um, promoting their youth uh, into the first team. I can imagine that was a quite an important um, decision as well when they're bringing you in because you had that track record of actually bring, bringing players through as well. Um, how do you balance that factor of like, you know, um, having like, quite young players in the team and then you have um, the likes of uh, like the experience like the, on Jordan Hugels and 
and whatnot on your team, uh, Angle Rangels. Uh, how do you balance that aspect? You, know, you want to bring them through, but you still want the performance levels to be of a high level as well. You do. And one of the biggest frustrations, Ben, is that everyone clamours for youth. And I think any youth player come to the academy will always be afforded more time by the crowd. Supporters are always more patient with the homegrown. You know, and you hear Harry Kane is one of our own. You'll always hear fans who love to see their, their academy products coming through. And I, I totally agree. I totally embrace that idea. The key thing is they've got to be good enough. They've got to be good enough. And right now, my big fear is there's too many people saying, try him. I, I have fans. Try him. Throw him in. It doesn't, what do you mean throw him in? It doesn't work that way. It's, it's elite level football. You know, this is, this is not just over the park. We've thrown down a couple of jumpers for goalposts. This is proper football. And you're saying, what do you mean throw him in? It could have a hugely detrimental impact on his development, on his confidence, etc. So you've got to do the right thing. So young players, some will be dipped in, taken out again. Some will accelerate quicker in their learning. Others require longer. That's the skill of the coach and the manager to know when and for how long. But the, the biggest problem I face, or not what I mean I face, I think football faces is when they, the clamour for youth fails to recognise that they need to be good enough. Because mm. if not, all that happens is the coach and manager get sacked. That's all that happens. Mm. And they, there's no reference to, oh, he, at least he tried all the youth players. So if you go back to Forest, that huge game that we had to better Blackburn's result, and... I look, I'm looking at it and I'm going, we had young Jordan in goal. Ben Brereton has now got a black of a seven mil. We had the likes of Joe Wall, who's now week in, week out for Nottingham Forest. Matty Cash is a top-class right back. You know, these type of players coming through really did well for us. But they're good enough. They were good enough. And even though it was a game of that significance, never had a doubt about playing them. Nor did Davey or, you know, at all. But they've got to be good enough, Ben. And as I say, I think... As budgets are being cut, COVID is going to cause the financial landscape to change beyond all recognition for the worse. Budget caps, salary caps, whatever will be coming in. And I think the clamour for young players and the academy products will be ever louder. But they have to be good enough. Because if not, they'll just sink and sell the managers and coaches. No, definitely, I agree. I feel like um, with the limitations now that it's going to be introduced for clubs with COVID, there's going to be a lot more of a creative approach with it. And I think even contracts will change where people start picking your model a bit more of the incentive-based uh, performances and whatnot. You're, um, right. You're right, and that's a key point to interrupt you. That's a key yeah, point because, because people, I think now, you know, agents, young players have to recognise that the goalposts have moved. And we all hope very much that in three, four, five years, it starts to come back to where it was pre-COVID. But right now, it's not. And it'll be the agents, the players, the clubs that can adapt best of all. They'll be the ones that can move forward, Ben. If not, I, I do fear we could lose a, a tranche of clubs here. Wigan's news yesterday, Paul Cook's doing a magnificent job. And that news yesterday, devastating for Wigan. You know, cup final not seven, eight years ago. Mm, yeah. Devastating news for Wigan. But I, I do fear they're not the only ones. I fear there's others who are teaching on the brink here. And at the moment, League Two and League One are mainly furloughed. But when they have to start paying their players to get fit for pre-season, there's no supporters coming in, no revenue. How are they going to pay the bills? So we've got to be very, very careful here. And as I say, it's a, a very dangerous situation right now. Definitely. You know, you talked there about, you know, being a dangerous situation, obviously the challenges the businesses face within this, uh, I guess, this aspect. I'd just be interested to kind of take it back to yourself a little bit now and look at, 
what would you say some of the biggest challenges you face in your journey? In football, as well. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, in football, and then you know, if there's anything else within your, I guess your life, life that you can be transferred across, yeah. and I guess some key principles can be taken away from it, or lessons that you've learned from that. Then yeah, fine, go for it, man. I think some of the key challenges um, coming into football, people don't know who you are. You know, I, I felt for a long while, who's he? You know, when you come up against people who have had established careers and they know so many people and, and your background is youth and, that you know, they, they don't really know who you are and everyone's very sceptical. So you have to, you have to set the, uh, the tone right. You have to say, look, you're, you're confident but not arrogant. You have belief in your ability but never come across as obnoxious. You know, you're always keen to learn, always respectful. I keep using that word respect because it's so, for me, it's a foundation of everything. If you're respectful to people, you may disagree with them. But how you talk to them, how you respond to them, says everything about you as a person and what you stand for. You know, I think the days of, in the days of, you know, kick, bark and bite the players have long, long gone. Society is producing a different individual now. Whether they call them the millennials, whether you call them Generation Z, whatever you want to call them, they don't deal with criticism as well. Um, and you've got to learn what makes them tick. You know, how do they learn? what makes them respond positively, all of these things. So for me, that's, that was one of the big challenges, is, is maintaining, being true to myself. Um, I've kept a lot of good friends, but I think by doing that, um, the other challenge is, uh, is, is making sure that you, you keep up to, to, to date with trends in the game and, and making sure you don't immerse it. There's so much to do all the time. And I mean, there is so much to do phone calls, you can phone a player. I phoned someone, an ex-player today, a friend of mine, and I'm on the phone for two hours, 20. I told my wife, I'll be in five minutes on the phone. It was nearly two and a half hours. How'd you explain that one? I didn't expect it, but... How'd you explain it to her? Well, badly, really badly. <laughs> but, um, uh, but uh, going back to the previous point, I could have said, can't speak now, sorry. But I didn't, and I felt I helped him. I know I've helped him, and he's helped me in the past. So. In my mind, that was two and a bit hours, two and a half hours well spent. And that'll hold me in good stead and I hope him in good stead. So all, all these type of things, there's so much going on in the game. And, you know, I've got to look at whole Middlesbrough after this to see how Middlesbrough shape up for Saturday, Sunday rather. But you've got to make sure at the same time you keep up to date with what's going on. What's yeah. the news within the game? What's the latest ideas in the game? The data, what can we access to in a currently action? How can we improve what we currently offer our players? Is our framework right? Is our staffing product? All of these things, you've got to keep looking. On top of that, as recruitment, looking at players, which takes time. There's no fast track. You know, if you get, I'm looking at three or four players here, and I'm going, well, it takes time, hours and hours. So it's just how you allocate your time, but make sure you're up to speed with the latest potential um, opportunities to improve what you do. You touched on it a little bit earlier, obviously we talked about Dick Bate and you know, throughout your coaching journey, obviously he was a massive influence, I think, for you early on in your journey. Is there anyone else that you'd add to that, that list of you know, potential mentors that you've had in your career? And you know, it would be interesting just to maybe think about what were some of the biggest lessons you took from them? Not just, not just mentors, I think it's people, some could be younger and you know, whatever else. I mean, my best boss I ever worked for was in the city. Like on Mike Cornford, you know, enormous respect, enormous respect for his discipline, his subject knowledge, how he would treat people. Um, loved it, loved it. You know, he he was the very best boss. No, 
no idea about football. Couldn't even tell you what, what shape the ball is in football. But his principles of, man, of management and man management environment, I learned loads from and took it into what I do every day in my football career. Absolutely. People like John McDermott, who was at Tottenham for 12, 13 years and has now gone to be assistant technical director of the FA, top individual. Um, huge knowledge, passion for the game, intelligence, um, always seeking to learn, introduce new ideas. So you just see, you just keep learning, but you, all these relationships give something back, give something back. You know, and I, I saw a guy, I, I played a pretty game golf a couple of weeks ago, and I met a guy and, and, and seen since 2001. But I remember one interview technique that he used, and I told the guys about. Now, here he is, I haven't seen him for 19 years, and I hear a shout of, whoa, boom, across the golf course, and it's him. But I learned how to do certain things in interviews from him. So all these, you take, you take snippets, and I write things down. I, you know, I, I like writing things down. I've got journals all around me here. Just little, little sayings, you know, you read the Eddie Jones book uh, and things, there'll be snippets in the Eddie Jones book. And I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to meet Eddie a few times and, and, and chat to him and Steve Borthwick. Very smart guys, very clever guys. You know, and all these people that you're, I find it privileged to meet them because I hope very much that they say the same about yourself. But you can learn from them, yes. And, and sometimes it supports what you do. Sometimes you meet people who reinforce actually, you know, what. That's bad practice. I know it's bad practice, and they're, they're showing me that it is. So it's all these things. There's never a bad meeting in my mind, but the mentors can be many, and uh, as long as you're always seeking to learn, I think you'd be okay. It's important to really highlight that mentors can come in all shapes and sizes, and they don't necessarily have to be older people or even people that are in your industry in particular. So I think it's very important, you know, that coaches and anyone listening to this or watching this does take that on board. And maybe just looks to people for certain skill sets rather than where they are in the industries, if that makes sense. Um, but you know, just interesting. I want to take you right back to where I guess your journey in the quote-unquote elite world started. Obviously, part-time coach at Watford in the academy way back. Um, let's not give away your age; can't be too far away. Um, but hey, it's too hard. If you had an opportunity to go back now and you know maybe speak to Mark Warburton of back then, what would be one message you'd want to give him? That's a good question. Um, uh, that's uh, two things. If I could spin it, because I had an academy world, yes, and I had a first yeah. team world. Go so for if it. I back to Mark Warburton in the academy, I would have said do it earlier. That's right. what I would have said because I. I would. I had that period, and, and this I was. I was touched. Well, I was fortunate to have a good job. Jobs in the city, uh, and a decent reputation. And I was very lucky to earn good, to make okay money. So I was and support my family. So I was very lucky in that respect. But I knew once in two thousand and one, once that blue touch paper was lit, you know, level one, level two, bang them out. Level three, I'm on it for eight months. And uh, a guy called Ted Dale, who's FA now, but was Chelsea's head uh, director. He's what mentored me through. Um, so I, would, I should have done it earlier because I, uh, and I would have really could have gone for that. Um, if I look at the, uh, the first team, I would say, um, uh, care for what you care about. So I'd be, I talked to you a lot today about respect and environment and I listen too much to people. So I, I'll try and give an example. Um, uh, I won't tell what club, it gives too much away, but, um, at one club, we had to sell a striker. We had to sell someone to balance FFP. And I was told we had to sell this, you know, a lot of money. 
and you know, several million pounds, and you needed that money to, to make sure the club was in the right position. It's like, okay, fine. And there would be a, a small amount left to buy a couple of players. So I said, fine. Now you've told me that as my CEO boss, and I've listened to it, and I've, I've done that. And then when the side was sold, I get the guy plays around the door and say, oh, can I come in? He said, yeah, of course you can. Why aren't you the boss? He says, yeah, but I thought you might be raging because we sold the player. I said, well, you told me at the interview that we had to. And then I suddenly realized Glasgow Rangers are the same. Sometimes the ruthlessness is just saying, I won't swear, but sort all of them. Look after yourself. If you're trying to be respectful, you're trying to work what you think is the city works around information flow. And if in the city you're told there's your trading limit, that's my trading limit. I don't break it. But they're saying almost in football, you should smash that limit and hopefully it goes well. Well, no, you can't. You can't. But that's my old world. So my advice to me would be at the start of my managerial career, sometimes you just got to speak a lot of them. So a lot of them get on with it and do what you think is best. And I was trying to, I was maybe too respectful to certain people that uh, I should have, I, that appeared naive. And I, I'm not naive, but it came across that way. Mm. And um, in regards to now, you're obviously currently GPR's first team manager. You're, you're doing really well bringing, bringing the youth through and it's been a solid, it's been a solid season and with some decent form uh, pre-COVID coming up. Uh, what is next for Mark Wolverton? Uh, good question, Ben. For me, I just want to, um, I want to be the best I can be. And that sounds a really corny and basic old line. But for me, you don't know in football. You know, I told you about you, you don't expect to be set, but you do in, in, in certain situations. So for me, I, I'd, I'd love to manage in the Premier League. Absolutely. But I want to be in a position, Ben, where I feel challenged. I'm 57 years old. And I feel that, you know, by the time I get to 62, 63, I, I'd like to say, right, I've done okay for myself. And I'd like to be playing golf and playing my mates and doing that, what we all do in our retirement. But I've got another, I've, for me, I've got another five years or so where I can contribute and I can, um, I know I can go to better level, higher levels, hopefully with QPR. I hope very much so, you know, they stick with me and I stick with them and, and we go on to where we go on to. But I, I, wanna, I wanna go into somewhere where I'm challenged and I can contribute. And I, that's the thing, when you're not working, what killed me most of all was not being in a position to contribute. Mm. You feel you. I personally, rightly or wrongly, felt not useless, but I felt you go from one minute being in charge of all these people, you know, media every day and all the rest of it, Sky, and then it comes to being a manager, and then there's nothing. Mm. And then you think, well, I'm the same person I was yesterday, but you find yourself, you can go weeks and end. And the LMA are magnificent in that respect in helping the staff because I can see why, touch wood, I'm, I'm very lucky not to, to suffer from it but I could see why people have issues you know this, the depression type issue because you go from being so so busy every day the phone never stops I've got something like 17 missed calls I'm talking to you here and you go I'm so busy and then when you lose your job or you're not working you can sit here and the phone doesn't ring yeah. and that's when you find out who your friends are of course but you also as I say I can see why you have a massive void that needs filling so I hope for me in the next five years, in answer to your question, Ben, I hope I'm in somewhere where I am challenged, that I can contribute and make a positive contribution to, to moving that club or that organisation forward. Yeah, you did. No, it, was, um, it was a very uh, honest uh, answer, Dan. I appreciate that. And uh, just touching on the depression uh, 
aspect of it. Um, I can imagine it's, it was really tough uh, for not only you, but like your know, players as well. And um, just in general for people during this uh, lockdown, was that was there anything that you particularly faced in terms of, uh, you know, your staff or players in that, in that regard, they're managing them in this uh, lockdown period? This is a big subject, this one, Ben, which is very much in vogue at the moment. Um, Sorry, we'll, we'll cover it on this comes, part two. <laughs> well, hopefully this comes across right. But I think when people have issues such as that, they deserve and need every bit of help and support we can give them. Right? So I absolutely say that anyone... My big fear right now, however, is that too often it's being used. And yeah. people, you know yourself... In life, you've got to learn coping mechanisms, how to deal with criticism, how to deal with failure. You know, if you, if you get a C in your exam, you need a B to get to university or, you know, you're not picked for the Sunday team or you're not picked for a netball team. You've got to, whether you're 11 years of age, 21 or 51, they're, they're your coping mechanisms. And I do really worry that there's some um, not so genuine people right now who claim these things. And I'm thinking, that's just life. That's just life. You know, when I hear about I couldn't deal with COVID, the lockdown, I'm thinking there's people who have lost family members. There's people who can't pay their bills. There's people who are losing their house. There's people losing their business. who can't put food on the table. That's problems. And as I say, people who genuinely have issues, we've got to make sure we offer all the help and support in the world. But, you know, you know where I'm coming from. So in terms of our squad, now we maintain contacts a lot with them. Um, throughout the, the lockdown, they had the programs of work to do, uh, and they reported in their GPS data, their running data, their loading data, um, and, the, and the, the staff and the, the players got together were very tight. And I hope very much, Ben, there was no issues that I'm unaware of. But as I say, please help, you know, take that point right. I, my big fear going forward is that such a big thing's been made of it, and it's got to be people who are worthy of the cause and care and concern, and it can't be people who are just not failing or not being able to cope with really basic issues. Mm. Definitely. You know, just as we start to wind down now, you know, I think it's a really good point that you've made there. But I'd just be interested to know now if you know if we gave you 60 seconds now and you could package away one golden nugget for our listeners, you know, whether that be our coaches or just general listeners, what would that be? It would be two things I mentioned to you earlier. It would be everything you do is underpinned by hard work. There is no shortcut. There's no taking a you know, pro license tomorrow and suddenly you're working at Chelsea or Tottenham. It doesn't work that way. You've got to, you've got to build it on it. So hard work underpins everything. And never underestimate the value of people's skills. Never underestimate that. Whether it be an interview for you, whether it be you interviewing someone, whether it's you meeting a player, whether it's you meeting a family of a young player, the, 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 the ability to interact and hold conversation and, and sell yourself and who you work for to the relevant person is so so critically important so hard work and people skills for me are the two to use your term nuggets that i would i would absolutely pass on brilliant and there you have it guys look it's been another fantastic discussion again today some brilliant insights plenty of golden nuggets for everyone to take take away and apply business certainly note taking for myself and ben on this one um Mark, I just want to say thanks again for you know your time today. It's been very useful and I think very entertaining. And I guess it will be very insightful for everyone listening in and watching this. Just want to say thanks again, guys, for tuning in. As usual, I've been joined by my co-host, Ben. 
But a very special thanks again to Mark Warburton, first team manager at QPR. Really appreciate you. It's nice talking to you both. Brilliant. And on that note, guys, we can let you know where to get in touch with us. You can find me on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. And Ben? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at FocusBXN. That's it. And guys, make sure you get in touch. Make sure you use the hashtag, the Coaches Network. Make sure you like, comment, share, subscribe to whoever you can. Pass it into your sister, your mum, your doctors, your nurses, your mum, your dad, their aunties and uncles and their grandmas too. Every, every single one you can think about. But, um, there you have it, guys. Another edition of the Coaches Network Inside Series. Where we sit down and experience individuals across the multiple disciplines within the coaching world. Um, different concepts Hoping you to explore their journeys and key insights in order to package away some golden nuggets that care. you can apply to help you reach your full potential. I've no doubt that you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we have, but I just want to say thanks again for tuning in. The support is much appreciated. Please do get in touch with us and today's guests. Let us know where you're listening from to share your thoughts, views and key takeaways from today's show, along with any suggestions you may have for guests or future topics on the show that you'd like to hear discussed. Ultimately, guys, the show is about yourselves. The content is for you and we just want to continue to create that great content. On that note, get in touch with us on Instagram at The Coaches Network and on Twitter at The Coaches Net. And if you want to touch base with Coach Ben, he's available on Instagram and Twitter at FocusBXN. Lastly, guys, keep an eye on our socials for the latest updates and announcements for upcoming guests and discussion topics with the panel. And until next time, guys, take care. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together.